Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello and welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch, a host with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, and Chris Tilling. Quick note, if you've never given us a rating on iTunes or whichever service you use, it would really be helpful if you could do so as a small gesture of appreciation. And we want to also thank two of our supporters of OnScript in particular, Pavi Thomas and David Johnson. Thank you so much to the two of you for your generous support. And thanks also to others who support the podcast on a regular basis. Okay, Aaron and Drew are hosting this episode. Enjoy. Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Aaron Heim coming to you from Denver Seminary in Littleton, Colorado. And I'm joined today by Drew Johnson, who is coming to you from the King's College in New York City. Hello there, OnScript superfans. Our guest today is Dr. Douglas Groteis, professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. Doug is not only my colleague, but he's also my former teacher. And I think you can probably blame him for any of my dilettante dabblings in philosophy because his classes were fabulous and really interesting. Doug's newest book, Walking Through Twilight, is a memoir about his journey alongside his wife as she was diagnosed and then finally succumbed to a form of dementia called primary progressive aphasia. This book is a little different from our usual on-script fare. It's raw and painful to read at times, but it's also profound. I wept many times while reading this book, and it might be the most important and relevant book I've ever read for grief and pastoral care. In a word, this book is sacred, and in reading it, I felt as though I were treading on hallowed ground. Yeah, and Aaron, when you first suggested this book, uh, I jumped on uh, the chance to interview um, Dr. Groteis. Uh, my mother is in her 10th year of um, early onset dementia diagnosis, and so uh, I was just looking for someone else to wrestle through the issues with it, and I think we found it, and, and the word you used, raw, this raw form, um, was very helpful. And this book was still, uh, it was written while Doug was still journeying alongside uh, his wife, Becky. But this July, Becky went home to be with Jesus. And it seems really fitting that I started reading this book on the day that I learned of Becky's passing. So, Doug, thank you so much to have it, to, for having the courage to write this kind of a memoir. And thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to OnScript. You're welcome. And thank you for having me. Doug, I wonder if we could start with you telling us about your wife and your life together. Yes, Becky and I met in 1983. We were both in campus ministry, and we had many common interests. She encouraged me to write my first book, Unmasking the New Age, and she told me that she would edit it as we went along. So after that, I decided we should get married, and she agreed with that. And we were married in 1984. And we would have had our 34th anniversary um, coming up in, or actually in August 4th, so that, that has already passed. But uh, Becky and I had a very intellectual literary relationship. Uh, she edited all my books up through Christian Apologetics, and she herself wrote two books, Women Caught in the Conflict and Good News for Women, and co-edited a major academic book called... Um, 
discovering biblical equality. So when we found out she had this rare and cruel form of dementia, we knew that she would lose her ability to speak and lose her ability to think and eventually to do even the most ordinary tasks. So it was, it would be a loss for anyone, but it was uh, triply a loss, if you will, or is three times as bad when someone was really a genius. Becky was a member of Mensa, in fact. I wonder if you could tell us your um, your favorite memory with Becky. What did you like most about her? I think I liked uh, her humor and her intellect, and they both combined. She was very sharp and had a tremendous sense of humor. I remember when Becky took a class I was teaching back in the 90s, probably about 95, and some of my friends uh, were in that class. There were students and now uh, graduates and friends, and they still say, we, we love the way she used to give it to you. you know? <laughs> she was fearless, and uh, she had the, the inside scoop on the prof and was smarter than the prof, so I have a lot of good memories about that. Was that nerve-wracking to have her in class? I can't imagine having my husband in class with me. No, it was, you know, to use a cliche, it kept me on my toes, certainly, but I enjoyed it because we we thought very much alike and we just sparked each other's curiosity and uh, analytical abilities. Yeah, um, this is Drew speaking. I... um... I was a little surprised at the book. I, I don't know why I hadn't thought of it this way, but um, the, it, it's a memoir, but it really, I feel like I walked away from the book knowing your wife. Um, and one of the reasons is, is because you're so vulnerable with um, y- your interactions with her. But I think there's also a way in which we get to know people when we see them in unexpected circumstances. And I feel like this book was just a series, a long series of unexpected circumstances with you know no roadmap forward. And in a later chapter, you talk about uh, jazz and improvisation. Um, and I wonder, uh, when you look back at your life with Becky, how, uh, how do you see, uh, I guess, which moments of improvisation stand out most poignantly to you? I guess a lot of it would be how we related as writer and editor, because early on when Becky edited my work, I resisted some of her changes, and then I realized that resistance was futile, and that she always made my writing better, or at least 95% of the time. So when she would edit, let's say, an article, popular or academic, or a chapter in one of my books, she would sometimes put sentences in different paragraphs and cross out words or the worst, the most dreaded mark was a question mark. What are you talking about? (laughs) So I think in that way we had kind of a jazz relationship call and response through writing and editing. In the book, you reflect on some detail, some detail about the flood of emotion, particularly rage and sadness that you felt, at times throughout this walk, but maybe especially toward the beginning, or at least it happens at the beginning of the book. Can you tell us how you came to view sadness or lament as a godly emotion and um, rage as an ungodly one? Yes. Uh, When Becky was first hospitalized, it was a very confusing and maddening situation. And I became very angry and essentially got kicked out of a behavioral health unit because I was so angry at someone, not at Becky, but 
I don't encourage that. Rage is one of the works of the flesh that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. And through this, uh, that kind of uh, unproductive, ungodly anger started to subside. And I was able, able to give that over to God. But lament is something I've been studying for many years. And it's a way of offering our sadness and also our anger to the Lord. And Scripture gives us voice for that in so many places. There are perhaps 60 psalms of lament in the psalms. At least that's the number that Glenn Pemberton gives in his excellent book, Hurting with God. And the book, I think, of the Bible that has helped me the most in lamenting is Ecclesiastes, which is not really a lament, but it's more of a a philosophical observation on the unfairness of life and finding the categories for not understanding God's ways under the sun. How do you continue to live a fruitful life, a meaningful life when so much is so opaque and in some cases uh, deeply frustrating? So the scriptures gave me the tone and the voice and actually the way of being through this. I didn't have to fake myself out into thinking I was somehow happy about this or that I could read God's mind and say, well, my wife got this horribly cruel disease because of X, Y, and Z. Uh, No, not at all. But the way I like to put it and the way I put it in the book is that I was able, by the grace of God, to smelt meaning out of suffering, or you might say to sculpt meaning out of suffering. I couldn't fix anything. And when Becky got this dread diagnosis of primary progressive aphasia, that was the point where I gave up on her getting better because it's a terminal disease. And Becky had been struggling with illnesses for decades, many different illnesses. So I gave up on her healing, at least at least in this life, and tried to hunker down and do everything I could to walk with her through this uh, twilight. Now, I noticed that in the um, ETS or EPS program this year that you're actually giving a paper on lament as apologetic. Can you tell me a little bit about that, how lament and apologetics go together? Right. Well, a classic problem for Christian theism in philosophy is the problem of evil. How can there be a God who's perfectly good and all-powerful and there be this much evil in the world? It doesn't seem to cohere those propositions. I've written about that at length, as have other Christian philosophers, but there's another angle to this, and that's the existential dimension. We will suffer in this life. The question is, will we suffer well? Will we suffer with hope? Will we suffer in a way that is authentic to the situation and authentic to who we are as human beings? So you might say that as Christians, we can develop a better skill at suffering than people who haven't come to Christ. And this is a witness to the Lord because we know because Christ died, suffered for us, that suffering can be redemptive. So in a way, we can embrace unavoidable suffering and find meaning through the pain because of the cross and also, of course, have hope 
and encouragement because of the resurrection and ascension and session and second coming of Christ. So Christ gives a context and a meaning to our suffering. We don't uh, lapse into despair because we know our work in the Lord is not in vain. At the same time, we do grieve, as Paul says, but we don't grieve the way the world grieves. So I think that suffering well as a Christian is a testimony to the existential power and truth of the Christian worldview. And there's another book on this that emphasizes it and has helped me a lot, and that is a book by Tim Keller called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And about the first third of that book articulates this theme. And when you think about it in comparative context, other, no other religion gives us a suffering God, a God who humbles himself for us and suffers to the uttermost for our redemption. So I think that's a key apologetic element uh, in our in our toolbox, so to speak. Hmm. When I was um, thinking about the the relationship between lament and apologetics, as I read that you were giving a paper on it, not having an idea of what that would be about, I found myself wondering if uh, there's not some sort of a moral argument that could even be made. Uh, does lament even make sense? Our, our sort of innate need to lament, does it even make sense without a personal being to cry out too, or if I mean, I, I wonder if you have given any thought to that. I have, and I like the way you put that because a lament is grieving the loss of something taken to be good, and God is the basis of all goodness, aesthetic, moral, any kind of goodness. So, to lament with a backbone, so to speak, is not merely to make a complaint or be uncomfortable or ticked off. It's a deep groaning in the face of suffering, which says, this should not be. Is there any way I can cope with this? So it's a lot more than just being disgruntled or somehow peeved. It goes very deep into the human condition as we are made in God's image and also fallen. So you're right. Can a, can a nihilist really lament. Uh, there's no meaning and there couldn't be. So just do what you want. There's no grounding for that kind of cry of the heart to heaven. Uh, it's an empty heaven for any atheist. And the same thing with Eastern religions that don't teach a personal God. Uh, you just dissolve into the infinite void. So there's no comfort. There's only the dissolving of the self, the destruction of the self and that's no real answer. That's no comfort. So I think you're right. And I'll probably steal a few of those ideas, Aaron, and I'll put you in a footnote. Well, I'm sure I learned to think that way from you. So <laughs> <All right>. um, <laughs> I don't know if you need to footnote me. <laughs> well, when you really exegete lament, so to speak, psychologically and biblically and theologically, it's a profound topic. And in American culture, at least, we seem to have an obligation to be happy. We, we use comments like, well, we need to move on and 
don't be down about it. And certainly we need to embrace the goodness of life and Christians await the restoration of all things. But there is a time to mourn. There's a time to laugh and we need to know what time it is. It's not always easy to know that. Ecclesiastes deals with that uh, so profoundly in so many different ways. Hey, do you think there's some kind of way uh, in which, if, you know, if you look at the, the span of lament across Scripture, including into the New Testament, that there's kind of a habituation of lament, uh, that you, you even practice the form before you personally encounter it, maybe? Um, and that if the church is not practicing the form of lament, we're basically just have this atrophied muscle. So when, when the reasons for profound lament come, uh, we just don't know what to do. So we whitewash it. We uh, turn to um, addictions or, or re-narratize the whole thing and kind of make it, spiritualize it so that it's actually not as bad. So, you know, you hear people talking about their, their funerals are going to be graduation services up into the heavens. And, um, and I, I wonder if there's a way in which we should be training uh, for a good death. Oh, definitely. And you see this in a liturgical tradition of Christianity where you confess your sins uh, on a weekly basis and you come to the table on a regular basis and you're drawn into that sacred narrative of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and so on. Uh, confession of sin is a, a kind of lament. It's a moral lament. Now there are other kinds of lament where a terrible disease strikes someone and it seems senseless. And then we have the whole season of Lent where we, reflect on our sins and we give up something uh, to sharpen our understanding of our sin and God's redemption. So I think that's a really good observation that if we don't practice, as it were, in the routines of the church and in our personal uh, devotional life, then we're not prepared. Now, all you need to do is go to the book of Psalms, uh, particularly Psalm 90, which I spend some time with, in my book and let yourself dwell on those things. Uh, Psalm 88 and Psalm 39 are the only Psalms that don't have a resolution mm -hmm. into praise or into thanksgiving or hope. And Psalm 88 is a Psalm of uh, Heman the Ezraite. We don't know much about him, but he was chronically ill. And the last verse is darkness is my closest friend or some translations are, my, uh, all my friends are in darkness. Well, that's not very upbeat. Um, how'd that get in the Bible? <laughs> and then Psalm 39, my paraphrase, at the end, David basically says, God, leave me alone because you caused me so much trouble. So it's there in Scripture, and we should be able to bring all of our emotions and offer all of our emotions before the Lord and ask Him to receive them and to change us as we need it. But we don't have to pretend, as you said, we don't have to re-narrativize -narr everything such that it's really not so bad. No, it's horrible. It's a fallen world. And we need to own that, take that seriously. And actually that makes our hope all the stronger because when we see how dark this world can be and how seemingly meaningless it can be, then we go back to Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his second coming. And we see what the restoration is. And the final 
Well, for a long time, I would read passages of scripture to my wife, Rebecca, especially the last several weeks. And I would read about the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21 and 22. And I'd read her Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that didn't take away the disease. It didn't take away the tears and the anguish, but it did take us out of despair. Uh, can I uh, quote you a little bit of you back to you here? Um, chapter one, um, there's a sentence in the first paragraph. <laughs> I love these kind of sentences, by the way. It's, quote, this chapter recounts learning to adjust to having my wife in a psychiatric unit, end quote. Um, and then you describe your emotional outburst, which I think ended, was were the police involved or security was involved? No, no almost. We, we okay. avoided that one somehow. But it was it was a... It was a, an intense moment, it sounded like. Um, and then you say, quote, At the bottom, though, or at bottom, advice, no matter how sagacious, cannot substitute for the work of the Holy Spirit, end quote. And so I wonder, um, just to put some flesh on the bones here, uh, what would you say are some definitive moments where you can say, okay, that was the work of the Holy Spirit uh, and you or and your wife? And, and I'm sorry, I have a philosophical bone in me, so I also want to ask, and how did you know it was? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the way I would put it, especially as things went along and I adjusted to some extent to her ongoing decline, was the sense of being upheld by God, of seeing in a very clear-eyed way how bad this was and how anguishing this was, but at the same time having the strength to keep going and providing the care and trying to find the self-care. And how do I know? Well, I know uh, because there's such a strong case for Christianity, and I've developed that over my entire adult life, and it eventuated in some ways with my textbook, Christian Apologetics. So if I feel nothing, and if it seems like I'm praying to an empty heaven, or if I feel forsaken, I know I'm not forsaken uh, because of the strong rational case for Christianity and also because of the strength God has given me and the way that the scriptures speak into my life. I can't maybe say there was uh, definitive experiences in a singular sense. I think it was more how God carried me along. There were very meaningful times. In fact, I have a little episode or interlude in the book when Becky was singing with one of our caregivers and I was downstairs and they were singing, Jesus loves me. And that was a very profound moment because in the simplicity of that song, the caregiver who was a Christian and Becky, of course, who was a Christian were affirming their faith in Christ together. And Becky could sing longer than she could talk. And that's interesting that that happens sometimes with stroke victims and people with dementia that uh, uh, she could for about the last year, but at times she could sing a whole Christian song, but she had a very difficult time completing a sentence and she couldn't read. So the singing was actually very meaningful to her and to me also. Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting. I, I've heard from 
uh, cognitive psychologist that uh, singing lasts the longest even in uh, dementia and Alzheimer's because it's the most distributed form of learning across the brain. It's the most resistant to deterioration, which is interesting because Deuteronomy, the only thing Israel has ever commanded to learn is a song. And of course, so much of her theology is in song in the Psalms, as you've said. Well, and another thing uh, that happened with Becky was that her sense of humor was intact up until about a week before she died. Wow. And we had developed our own distinct sense of humor through almost 35 years of knowing each other. So we had a rich treasury of things to draw from. And it got to the point where she couldn't say anything funny, but she could respond to things. Hmm. And that was a mercy to both of us. In fact, I've got a chapter in the book called Gallows Humor. And some of our humor related to some pretty dreadful things. Like I used to refer to her time in the psychiatric unit, which is five weeks, is time when she was in the funny farm. And the people who were in there were inmates. We just laughed at that. She laughed at it. It was not ridicule at all. It's just a way of, uh, I guess, trying to strike a blow at, at death through humor, strike a blow at the fall through humor. I think my favorite chapter in the book, uh, not because it was happy, certainly, but just because it was so... I, I just found it so profound, and I was undone, I have to say, by your candor in the chapter on learning things that you did not wish to know, that you learned how to share your home with a caregiver. And I, I, part of it is that I remember this happening because that happened the same time I came to Denver Seminary. And, you know, learning how to make legal and medical decisions for Becky. And I think what was so heartbreaking for me is that you and Becky, who were both such champions of mutuality and marriage and the equality of women, um, having to navigate those profound changes in your relationship uh, that necessitated you acting as her guardian or, as in your words, as her parent, or in Becky's words, you own her now, <laughs> Um and you said, you learned how it feels to weep often and to cry unexpectedly, even in public, and you now behold much of the world through tears. And I wonder, uh, did learning all these things that you didn't wish to know, did they change how you approach philosophy at all? Hmm. Well, I think they deepened, these experiences deepened my concern for the meaning of lament philosophically and theologically. And the meaning of love, I've reflected a lot on that. Um, and really, only Christian theism can support a rich, robust understanding of love, because God is love, and he shows his love through Christ in, in so many other ways. And in fact, there's love in the Trinity from eternity, and no other theology, no other philosophy has anything close to that. So... I guess I could think of one example. I wrote an article for the Chronicle of Higher Education called Teaching Through Lament. And I was incorporating the idea of uh, how one might suffer well, even while teaching. So I guess it was philosophy of pedagogy and some memoir and other elements thrown in there. And I probably wouldn't have written something like that if I had not experienced Becky's decline. 
You give a poignant example about a telephone toward, I suppose, again, toward the beginning of the book about the isolation and alienation that Becky experienced as a result of her illness. Would you mind recounting us um, that for us here? Well, this disease produces what's called apraxia, which means the inability to accomplish things. So one by one, things were taken away. Uh, of course, Becky could not drive even before she was diagnosed. It was too risky. And then communicating with the outside world through technology was taken away. Uh, she couldn't even figure out how to use a phone. And I give an example in the book where I tried to teach her so carefully. And no matter what I did, she could not figure it out. Uh, so I remember she put the phone down upside down on the base and it was almost beautiful. It was a very strange thing because you don't see phones putting put upside down on their base. It was just sitting there in all its futility. It was a, it was a bizarre moment. And that recounting of what happened with the phone was an episode of, of deep futility. And that's something I, we both had to wrestle with, that we can't fix this. We can only try to ameliorate the decline. And one thing is taken away after another. So for a while, uh, the caregiver might call me at work and put Becky's, uh, put the phone to Becky's ear and I could say something and she might say hello. But then even that was too much. Even that was taken away. We uh, we recently had Susan Eastman on our podcast, and uh, Susan Eastman's newest book um, deals with notions of personhood, especially personhood in the Pauline literature. And I found myself in that chapter on the telephone, um, thinking about Susan Eastman's work, and she argues that the self is always a self in relation to another. There is no such thing in her mind as a, a freestanding, independent self. And I wondered... Um, I wondered at that notion as I was thinking about Becky and her isolation and her alienation, and I wondered if you had given much thought uh, to the the effects of the fall on our capacity for uh, relationships, or um, if you'd thought much about the potential for suffering to draw people into closer relationships, or just um, wonder if you could riff on that just a little bit, because I know you like jazz. That's right. Well, I take, I guess, a more ontological sense of what the image of God is, that we are beings that possess a nature, and that nature is relational. And even if someone is completely alone uh, for years and years, they're still in some kind of relationship with God, and they can reflect on their relationships that existed previously. But the biblical doctrine of personhood that were made in the image and likeness of God was very significant for me because there's some people who say that when people suffer from dementia, after a while, they're not a person anymore. Or uh, years ago, uh, a particular television broadcaster gave the advice that if someone's wife had dementia so severely that she didn't recognize her husband, she had no way of interacting with the world, that he could divorce her because she wasn't really there anymore. Now, I was outraged when I heard that maybe 10 years ago. But as I reflected on it through all these 
terrible changes Becky went through, I saw it was even more hideous because no matter what Becky's abilities may be, no matter what suffering she's going through, she is a child of God. She is an image bearer of God, period, full stop. It's not that she has to exhibit intelligence or a particular kind of relationality to be who she is. So I thought that was really significant. And of course, Becky and I continued to relate in different ways. It was eventually completely one-sided in terms of speaking because she couldn't speak. Although one of the last sentences she ever said was, I love you so much. And I think that was about two weeks, three weeks before she died. So I think the self is certainly designed to be relational and relationship take relationships take many different forms. And she continued to relate to God in one way or another. It was sometimes a real struggle um, because of the unfairness and the intense suffering that she experienced. And to be fair to Susan, um, and I hope you read her book because I think you'd actually find it really what is, interesting. What is the title? The title is Paul in the Person. Okay. And, um, and, and her definition, or she thinks that Paul's definition of a person is one for whom Christ has died. That's her, that's the answer she gives to that. And I think that's really profound. And so her, and her understanding of personhood as relational doesn't mean that you have to have some sort of mental or emotional capacity or anything like that. But just, um, but I think it's really interesting that, um, the only, the two sentences that she looks at is, um, the I yet not I sentences in Paul. So I yet not I, but Christ in me and I not yet not I, but sin living in me. That there's this I in relation to sin and I in relation to Christ that undergoes this profound relational transformation in her view. Um, but I think um, I, I found myself reflecting on just the effects of relation the effects of sin uh, have on relationality, um, not in terms of a moral dimension, but in terms of um, just the the reality of living in fallen creation and how insidious it is that uh, something like primary progressive aphasia can take away someone's ability to um, to relate in the same way that they had related um, and that it causes such isolation and alienation it's such a it's such a I mean <laughs> a substantive loss it, is. it seems yeah. and that's true uh, this would never have happened if the world had not fallen and I would encourage Becky quite often that all the effects of the fall will eventually be taken away and I really focused on the new heavens and the new earth with her because uh, certainly there's an intermediate state where we're with God and with the saints, but that's not the point of being created in God's image. The point is to be with him and with God's people and thriving in the material universe that he created. But yes, the fall affects us in so many ways, ways we can understand you know, people bring some evil upon themselves, and then there is innocent suffering as well. But I'm thankful that it's not the whole story. It's uh, creation, fall, and redemption. Well, I'm being mindful of the time here. Um, I wanted to uh, think about um, some of the transferable skills I think you teach in the book. Um, e even thinking about um, 
things like people who are suffering uh, with death, people who are suffering um, with infertility, kind of long-term issues that will linger for them. You have a chapter, it's chapter 19, actually. Uh, how is Becky? The chapters are very short, by the way. <laughs> but it's how is Becky? And um, I think a lot of people will be able to relate to this, especially, you, go, you know, we're being faithful people to be with the community of God every Sunday or whenever we get together with our churches. And yet that can be the very group that terrorizes us when we're going through kind of a long-term difficulty. And I'm going to read a little bit from you here on page 153. You said, uh, quote, I like it better when people simply ask how we are doing and then leave time for an honest answer. And you go on to say, for me, hanging in there, surviving, I've been worse, are my answers for people I know? Or I may simply say, please pray for us. Occasionally I say, very good, and mean it. Uh, my most theological answer is, I'm hanging on by a thread, but the thread is knit by God. This often surprises people since it's so long and theological. So be it. I don't like cliches. My wife has been sick for so long that how's Becky has become oppressive to me because she is never doing well. Can you describe for us a little bit about how a sincere, warm-hearted question, as you describe it, can become oppressive? And, and I think my second question I can already tell you will be, what did, what did you wish people would ask you? Right. Well, it, probably in every case, it's well-meaning. How is your wife? Because they care about Becky, certainly. But as I said, she had been sick for so long, it was almost always a difficult question to answer. Or sometimes people expect you to say something positive. I guess that's maybe the most depressive part of it. Um, and after a while, there's not much of anything you can say that's positive. Or you could say our present caregiver is working out well, or what I would often say is things are stable for now. But I couldn't get a lot more happy than that. And I found the people that have the deepest sympathy or empathy simply embrace you or say um, something like, uh, I'm so sorry, or we're praying for you or something like that. Uh, for most people, if someone asks them, how's your spouse or how are you? It's not so big of a deal, but when someone has been chronically ill for many years, there's a weight to that kind of question. It's, uh, it's difficult, and I'm not trying to justify any kind of a flippant answer or being insensitive to the person, but I often would answer honestly things like, I've been worse, or <laughs> some of those kinds of things, a little bit dour, but... I'm not good at faking things, so. <laughs> I think that's a good thing. Actually, I, I first got to know about you and, and your wife um, through Facebook because somebody told me that you had a picture of my, of my book on there, and that really scares me when I find out other scholars have my book in their hand. Um, and so I started following you, and, and um, I think shocking was the first reaction um, in a good way about how honest you are on Facebook with sharing kind of the daily struggles. Uh, and so I imagine that there was probably an initial wave of concern and then people who really 
couldn't handle the answers, I assume they backed off after a while too. Well, I, I wouldn't say I did it to be therapeutic. I did it because I was trying to live this out for people who could sympathize with it. And obviously I wanted people to pray for me. And sometimes I would ask advice about certain kinds of things, but there are a number of people who I became close to actually through sharing my suffering and people I did not know outside of Facebook. Hmm. So I understand if people didn't want to read my laments and my, my poor poems about what we were going through, but I did get a tremendous amount of responses from people that said it helped them in their struggles. And uh, probably the best thing I ever heard was you gave words to what I was feeling, but I couldn't say myself. Mm -hmm. And as a writer and a teacher and a preacher, that doesn't get much better than that in terms of ministering to people through your gifts of writing and speaking and so on. Did, did you have any, um, for lack of a better word, uh, any backlash people who really thought you were doing harm or exploiting or? Uh, a little bit. I had some overly cheerful people try to chastise me and get me to look on the bright side and come after my friends who were lamenting with me. And in one case, I had to unfriend someone because he was, he didn't know how to lament, basically. It was always, well, we could do this and we can do that and we should be happy. And there are all these verses about this and that. And I, after a while, had to just get rid of him. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do it in a mean way, but he was coming after my friends and <laughs> you don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh they were trying to encourage me and lament with me. And one of the people that was posting is chronically ill and she has Lyme's disease and MS and she has chemical environmental sensitivities. She's a believer. She holds on, but her life is deeply pained and she could understand to some extent what Becky and what I were going through. And uh, he started to, be pretty rude to her. So that was the end of that. Mm. But I'm really hoping, and I feel this a little bit in my spirit already, that I'm entering into a new season. And I hint at that a little bit in the book. I say, God made me an expert in suffering. Maybe eventually he can make me an expert in joy. And I'm sensing that things are changing at a deep level for me. And I'm pursuing I've always pursued meaning and I love to laugh and I love my friends and music and all these things, but my general attitude in life is pretty, can be pretty melancholy. And just today in the mail, I got a book called between heaven and mirth, which is about the theology of humor. So if I buy a book about something, you know, I'm getting interested in it, trying to take it seriously. I have to ask a question about Sonny the Golden Doodle, because I seem to remember that when I was in your classes, maybe in 2006, 2007, so before Sonny the Golden Doodle was part of your life, you didn't really have much time for pets in people's homes. And I just wonder, um, I wonder how your view changed and what you would maybe say to 2006, 2007, Doug, about stewardship and dogs. Well, I really always loved dogs, but 
I didn't have a dog for a long time and I'm not really a cat person. So I'd probably say lighten up and start <laughs> enjoying God's creation more. But I got re reacquainted with dogs uh, through one of our students and now an adjunct, Sarah Geis, who you know. And she had two border collies and I just fell in love with them and got more uh, acquainted with the world of dogs. And that's a divine mercy really to me. And then we got Sonny in 2012 and he is the perfect dog for us. Um, he is a people person to the maximum and very sensitive. In fact, he was in the room when Becky passed away and right after she passed away, he jumped up on her bed and put her paws on her legs and looked over at her. And that was something I prayed about too, because he was such a comfort and encouragement to her all the way. And um, I wanted him to be there in the last moments. So I've actually got a chapter in the book about uh, dogs and dementia and how God can show grace through the love of a dog. Although dogs don't fare very well in the Bible, um, as I look into, I think the most positive verse about dogs in the whole Bible is better a live dog than a dead lion, which is in Ecclesiastes. Well, they do get to lick up the blood of a few famous people. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they get the crumbs. They get the crumbs yeah. under the table. They get the crumbs. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to uh, polish this story. Mm-hmm. You need a very skilled hermeneutic to find the positive in dogs from but I also wonder, now that you've said that, I'm just thinking of my cat. Um, I feel like he would be completely useless in this situation. He, he would isolate us even further. My cat would be great. But I think she's more like a dog than a cat. Well, you know, that's the best compliment you can pay a cat. <laughs> I, I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true. Yeah, my cat's 16 years old, and I'm. I confess, I will be very sad to um, to give her up in December. So, be praying for me with the cat situation. Um, uh, how is Sunny the Golden Doodle doing now after Becky's passing? Well, he had a few few days that were pretty tough because he would go up in her room and she wasn't there, and he was a little down. Uh, he's still very sensitive to me leaving uh, because, of course, Becky left and never came back. In fact, when Becky was in the hospital for five weeks, when she returned, he was ecstatic. He was jumping up and down and squeaking and just beside himself. And when Becky and I would go out together and come back together, he would always greet her first. And I think he was thinking, she came back. She came back. I'm so happy. Mm. So he can be a little down. He's a little more sensitive to me being apart from him. They call that separation anxiety. But he's a happy dog. And I'm real, really glad to have him in my life. Do you think there'll be dogs in the new heavens and new earth? Yes, definitely. Somehow, I think all that's good in creation will be uh, purged and redeemed in the new heavens and the new earth. So exactly what that looks like, how many species will be there, 
I can't answer that, but I think on theological grounds, if God made the world good and he made all the creatures, then why would they disappear forever in a restored world? Just my basic theological argument for that. I don't want to just be sentimental about it. It's very easy to develop a kind of cheap sentimentality. I'm, I'm too much of a philosopher for that. But I think you can make a case for it. Luther believed it, and C.S. Lewis believed it, too. So I've got those guys on my side. There's some really interesting evidence from domestication of wolves in Russia that, uh, that dogs can actually um, change very quickly within a few generations of domestication, or wolves can, uh, like physiologically, will change away from uh, their hypersensitive predator features. Even their, their snout, the length of their snout, and their the canines shorten within a couple generations in domestication. So I think there's a phys- I'm not a dog person, but I'll make a case for them theologically. Well, I think the interview's over now. <laughs> I, I can't, you know. <laughs> I don't like lima beans, and uh, I like dogs, just not like uh, I like it when other people have them. So, okay. Well, my best friend doesn't like dogs, and we're still best friends. Okay. So, we had a pug. Actually, we had two pugs for a long time, and um, it's not a dog. So, I, I really struggle with if 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 creation's going to be redeemed. Does that mean there will be no pugs? Because there is no way that, that no, no mosquitoes <laughs> that and no dog pugs. is not. I feel like I need to justify not, this too. I I live near New York City, and I'm in downtown Manhattan every day, and they don't have dogs here. They have these little things that people, they don't even let them touch the ground. They, I'm not lying. They go down the elevator with these dogs in their arms like a football, um, and then maybe it goes down to the ground just to poop and pee, and then it goes back up. They have Some of them even have handles on their dogs. They just carry them around. I'm not kidding. Like a piece of luggage. Well, that's sweet. <laughs> Yeah, it's not, it, it's the furthest thing from sweet I can think of, but it's it's weird. I just I don't understand it. So. Well, my dog is a meaty guy. He's seventy pounds. That's now that's a dog. Yeah. Anyway, I guess we're off topic. Yeah, this is uh, this is no, first time on no, on script. We've had this long of a conversation about dogs. About dogs yeah. and pugs, which are not dogs. I think we should be really clear about we that. Are Although get I love my pugs. About this now, animals do provide so much for us, obviously, but. Pets can uh, encourage and console and so sensitive to, some of them are so sensitive to human emotions. Uh, Even before Becky would start to cry, Sonny would come over and jump up on her lap. Wow. Before any sounds were emitted, he knew. And in fact, even today, I was uh, looking at a photo of Becky and I just felt bad and maybe kind of went, huh, like that. And he... He walked over to me and looked at me, saying, are you okay? So I'm grateful. Well, I think um, we, we at least need to get this one last question in um, that I think you had wanted to ask, Aaron, about pastors, because I think, I think there's so yeah. much valuable information in this book, um, or I guess it's more like a travelogue, I feel like, um, that would be so good for pastors. I'll let, sorry, I'll let you ask your own question. Aaron. Yeah, well, certainly, I mean... I, I'm married to a pastor, so I tend to think in terms of this, and I've seen uh, pastoral care done really well, and I've seen it done not so well. So I just wondered, Doug, if you could tell us what you most want pastors, or maybe your students who are training to be pastors, to know 
uh, when they walk into pastoral care situations like your situation with Becky or like when people are suffering and hurting in the, you know, the deepest, darkest parts of their lives? I think we all need to learn how to suffer well and then suffer well with others. And that will make us countercultural and American with respect to American optimism and artificial cheerfulness, artificial happiness, so to speak. And I think the first thing is simply being sympathetic, if not empathetic, and to embrace the fact that it is a fallen, broken world. Often presence and appropriate touch is the most profound ministry you can have and listening and not giving pet answers. That's key to caring. And of course, all the the practical help that the church can provide. My church, Wellspring Anglican Church, uh, brought Becky weekly communion for two years and provide, provided so much help and prayer and fellowship and so on. Now, I'm an Anglican, so we have a service called the Menstruation to the Dying. And uh, my pastor, actually the pastor of another Anglican church, Tim Suits, came and uh, held that service in Becky's bedroom about five days before she died. It's profound. It shapes everything towards uh, uh, the sacred, so to speak, or it gives a context of the sacred for the dying, which is so profound. Uh, I think what we all have to avoid is minimizing the suffering or comparing it to other sufferings. Like you don't want to say, well, at least it's not something else, which just minimizes the profundity of the experience of suffering. And, uh, or to say, oh yeah, I know what it's like because I had this problem. That just doesn't help people. So it's a skill. It takes time. I think learning to lament with uh, the Psalms can be profound in that respect. And I think that's one of the reasons I appreciate liturgical tradition so much, because there are words that the church has said in situations of um, of death and of dying and of suffering, et cetera. And at least for me, uh, I grew up Catholic and um, have we attended a Presbyterian church. It, it was it was so helpful uh, to think in those moments that this is what the church has said in this situation. Uh, I'm not alone in this. Um, I'm joining with the the saints are bearing witness to this uh, the suffering with me. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree completely and. Uh, Ecclesiastes says not to be hasty to utter anything before the Lord. And if we're informed and shaped by these wise traditions that reflect Scripture, then we are joining our hearts and joining our voices with the, the witness of a church down through the ages. We don't have to make it up as we go along. Well, Doug, thank you very much. I could actually listen to your voice all day long. <laughs> you have a great podcast voice or a radio voice. Um, I think uh, you've done a great service uh, to the church through doing this. I, I think um, it would be very tempting uh, to write a hagiography here or to put yourself as the central character. And it was um, 
it was delightful to read the actual suffering that you went through uh, in the sense that I felt like we, uh, I, we got to learn from it. Uh, and yet uh, you were careful the whole way not to tip over into celebration or diminishing the pain or suffering. Um, it was just a real delicate balance, and I feel like you walked it so well in a way that will be helpful um, for lots of people, including uh, pastors. As a, as a former pastor who always struggled uh, around the death, especially the death of children uh, and, the, and the death of spouses, um, I just very much appreciated uh, the work. Well, that's heartening to know. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Douglas Groteis. Uh, The book is Walking Through Twilight. Uh, That's all we have for OnScript. We will see you in two weeks. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.